Our text this morning comes from 2 Peter chapter 2, beginning with verse 10. It follows that which we investigated last time in verses 7, 8, and 9, as he identifies God's warning about false teachers and false prophets, and talks about that the reality of judgment may not seem to be evident as we observe it, but the assurance that there is coming a payday and a judgment day. And he warns against these false teachers. Verse 10 begins, But chiefly, them that walk after the flesh in the lust of uncleanness and despise government, presumptuous are they, Self-willed, they are not afraid to speak evil of dignities. Whereas angels, which are greater in power and might, bring not railing accusation against them before the Lord. And I've studied last time, we looked at the certainty then of God's judgment. It would seem that they get away with teaching false doctrine, misleading the children of God. And so we are reminded through the pen of the Apostle Peter that there is judgment pending and it will come. As I study this passage along with the harmony of Scripture that's related to it, it kind of uh, stops my common humanistic presentation of what to do with the false doctrine and the false teachers, my admonition has been kill them all and let God sort them out. But this scripture gives testimony contrary to that. We'll have to leave the killing to God and the sorting to God as well. But we need to understand uh, while we are not to attack the individual or to judge the intent of the individual, we are to be alert to false doctrine, to avoid the false teaching, to escape that, but leave the individuals up to God. In our study, the, again, we see the certainty of judgment against those that are flesh seekers, that are self-satisfied darers who despise authority. And they're identified in the text by two statements. Them that walk after the flesh in the lust of defilement and despise dominion, daring and self-willed they are. So look with me at the text beginning in verse 10. It begins, but chiefly, and that word but connects us back to the reality that God is aware of what's going on and the judgment of these false teachers and false prophets who are self-willed, who hate dignitaries, uh, that there is a judgment coming upon them. As we as sojourners, that is foreigners, live here in a country, in a land, uh, in a nation 
We are to recognize false doctrine, but we are to recognize as well that God has said our citizenship has been moved to heaven, the very kingdom of God, and we are here as sojourners to represent the concern and the interest of our King of Kings and our Lord of Lords. And as we live in this environment, no doubt we frequently ask, where is justice? Where is there any judgment against these that seem to do so much damage not only to the representation of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, but to our nation, to the people as a whole. David raised questions concerning that very thing. And Peter writes to believers that are experiencing what they might consider a lack of interest on the part of God for justice to prevail but he's assuring us it is coming, judgment is coming, and it's coming against the false prophets, it's coming against the false teachers, it's coming against those who make merchandise out of believers, and Peter assures us as distressed believers that there is judgment coming. And here... In our text today, he identifies a specific group. That word chiefly introduces this verse and it identifies especially. The word is uh, better translated especially the ones that walk after the flesh. The ones that walk after the flesh. That word walk is translated in the original language word poru manas as constantly, making it a principle, continually making it a principle to participate in following along behind the back of the flesh. The flesh is a reference in the text to our old sin nature, to that natural disposition that is found in the human race as a result of Adam's sin. He has passed that old nature down throughout the history of humanity so that we are born with a body and a soul but spiritually dead and with a natural tendency or disposition to sin. Nobody has to teach us to sin. We're able to handle that by ourselves. And as I have said, oftentimes parents get into that heated debate upon what was the first word of the child. Was it mama or was it dada? And I can pretty well assert it was neither one of those. It was no. And before they even can form it with the lips, the head picks it up even the youngest one in our midst has manifest that a time or two here with that negative shake of the head. We have a natural tendency to sin and to rebel because we are born with that nature. For that reason, we need to be born again. And when we are born again, it does not eliminate the old nature. 
it does eliminate the authority of the old nature. For before we are born of the Spirit of God, we are dominated by the old nature, but having received Jesus Christ as Savior and a spirit, we become a spirit being, and the Holy Spirit takes up residence in our in our lives. The authority of the old nature is gone. You may have observed his presence has not gone, but his authority. And while we did not have an out before, now as believers in Jesus Christ, we have the ability to resist the old nature when we use the biblical principles that are set forth for us in the Word of God. And so Peter addresses those. He says, especially the ones continually making it a principle to participate in following along behind the back of the flesh, the characteristics of the flesh, the old nature is in view here. That natural tendency on our part to sin. Now, I want to point out that in the text, it says chiefly them that walk after the flesh, but the word thee is not in the original language text. It is has been added because it makes better English for us. But the reason the uh, Peter did not include it is because he was not just pointing a finger at the old sin nature. He was pointing a finger at the characteristics of the old sin nature. Anytime we have the absence of the article, the word the, before a noun, the emphasis is upon the characteristics or the quality. The Bible speaks of God, and then it speaks of the God. The Bible speaks of Christ, and it speaks of the Christ in various places. And where the article, where the word the is there, we're identifying God specifically, Christ specifically. But where the article is not there, we're identifying the characteristics of God. There are seven attributes. You will recall that form the very essence of God And those are represented and manifest for us in the colors of the rainbow as each one of those is symbolic of one of the seven attributes or characteristics of God. The characteristics of Christ is under emphasis when the article is not used and just the word Christ is there. It emphasizes all of the characteristics, His virgin birth, His sinless life, His sacrificial Death, His victorious resurrection, His glorious ascension, His present intercession, and His coming again. If the article is there, the emphasis is upon the person of Christ. But if the article is not there, the emphasis is upon the characteristics. Here we have the word sarcos referring to the flesh. But it's not just identifying the flesh specifically that article is not there, it's identifying the characteristics of the flesh. What are the characteristics of the flesh? Well, as we study the Word of God, we find that the old nature and its characteristics has a a tendency 
uh, in an area of strength uh, that we produce human good. The old sin nature also has an area of weakness where it is most susceptible to temptation. It has a trend. It either uh, has a tendency to do goodism and self-righteousness from one's area of strength, or it has a trend toward lasciviousness and rebelliousness and independent acting against God in the area of our weakness. We don't get to choose which characteristics are dominant. It's passed on through the female. No, it's passed on through the male in the Bible. According to the Word of God, the uh, old sin nature is passed on from generation to generation through our fathers. We have an area of lust. You either have a, a pattern that is uh, built upon sensuality, the satisfaction of the senses, or upon ego and pride, or upon materialism and the lust of the eye. The scripture identifies in our study of these characteristics that you and I can identify personally what our characteristics are but the characteristics of the old nature are not good the characteristics are deemed to take us away from the truths of god even those whose tendency is toward do-goodism and uh, they they're just do-gooders by nature uh, that's acting independent of god and by the way they're probably among the hardest uh, to bring conviction upon for their sin because they don't do those other things that others do. And so the emphasis that Peter has is that there are especially the ones that are continually participating based upon their principles following along behind the back of their old sin nature, of the satisfaction of the characteristics of the old nature. And Peter adds, in addition to that, in the lust of defilement. In the lust of defilement. You'll notice again the word lust. The word the is not present in the original language because He's talking about our lust pattern, either ego or sensuality or materialism. All of the lusts of the flesh fall within those three categories. And one of those is dominant in each of our life. And again, as I've said earlier, we don't get to choose that. It's passed down to us. It's in our genetic makeup. And so we are in the lust of the flesh. Notice Peter says, especially then, the ones continually making it a principle to participate in following along behind the back of the flesh with its characteristics in the sphere of their lust pattern of defilement. No matter any, whether it be a morality or self-righteousness, both 
act independent of God and are defiling to us. Peter identifies the certainty of judgment then upon those who make it a principle to go along following the characteristics of the old sin nature in the influence of their defiling lust. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, the sensuality or the materialism or the pride. Now Peter moves from that to identify two characteristics of these individuals that provide for them to not be afraid of the blasphemy of dignities. It said they despise dominion and they are self-willed. Despise dominion. The word in the Greek text means they continually make it a principle to look down, literally to think down upon Others, They elevate themselves in their own self-worth to be superior to others and they think down then upon those that have a position of authority, those that are in dominion. The word that is translated dominion is a compound of two words. It's the word kurio, and uh, then it is given to us in the genitive and the feminine uh, gender. The It's the feminine gender of the word Lord. Kurios is the word for Lord. Kurio is the feminine aspect for Lord. And it identifies the response then of those who have been granted positions of authority. God grants all of the authority that exists. That seems to create a problem with us from time to time when the powers that be are ordained of God and and we look at leaders like Hitler and others uh, that do such devastating things. You're telling me, uh, according to the Scripture, that they are ordained of God? And the answer is yes. But we need to understand how that plays out in the Word of God. Because God has a directive will, He has a permissive will, and He has an overruling will. God's directive will is given to us in the Word of God It's the guidelines that are supplied to us as to what God uh, has designed for us and how we are to live that out, uh, the principles and the abilities that are provided uh, by the Holy Spirit and by applying the Word of God to our life to live out our individual design. God has a directive will for your life and for mine, specific direction that we are to function in. But he also has a permissive will. The permissive will says, well, that's not really what I wanted for you, but I'll grant that. I will allow that. And then God has an overruling will where he says, no, 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 
You're not going there. You're not going to do that. No matter how we try, the, the exit, uh, the entrance or whatever it is, is blocked and we're not able to do those things. The directive will of God is not listed with a thou shalt and a thou shalt not for every choice and every decision that we are to make. It would be wonderful if it were, uh, but then we would not have any more excuse that we have now as we operate under His permissive will. We need to know the Word of God. We need to know its principles. And yes, we do need to know the thou shalt and the thou shalt nots. But along with it, the basic principles that are found in the Word of God, and then the guidance of the Holy Spirit in our lives as He indwells us, that we might walk according to the directive will of God. The permissive will of God then is when He says, no, that's not exactly what I wanted for you, but if you insist, I'll grant you permission to do that. And then, as we've said, when He says, no, you're not going there. You're not going to do that. I don't know about you, but from time to time in my life, I've, I've asked God to take away the permissive will. Then there are times when I was glad it was there, but I've asked Him to take it away and just give me His directive will in a clear manner. And when I didn't understand it, His overruling will so that I could not go where he didn't want me to go. But then we would be relegated to being puppets. And he created us in his image that we might have free will. And the angelic conflict is behind it all as it relates to our free will in exercising the will of God as well. These that have positions of authority have those positions of authority under the permissive will of God. Why would God permit Hitler to bring such devastation upon his chosen people? Well, if we know anything about the history of the children of Israel and God's dealing with them, we'll know that uh, Hitler was not the first pagan that God used to discipline his children, the children of Israel. As a matter of fact, when Nebuchadnezzar went down and overthrew Jerusalem uh, and took all the people out of the land and took them uh, up to Babylon, God said, Nebuchadnezzar, my minister, <laughs> because he was the instrument that God allowed Nebuchadnezzar to do what was in the heart and the mind of Nebuchadnezzar to do because God's people had reached that point that judgment had to be meted out and they experienced that. Satan is identified in the Bible as the God of this world. But he has no authority that God does not allow under his permissive will. Those in positions of leadership in our own government shudder to pass the thought, but they are there with the permissive will of God. So are anti-God and haters of God. 
but God in His permissive will for His various reasons. I'll take that as an amen. For His various reasons has allowed that. He gives us that option, that opportunity of free will because we are in the midst of an angelic conflict and our free will is being manifest in order that the angels might understand that their judgment is sure and just as they are going to be cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, those rebellious, sinful angels we shall judge. So, these that are in places of leadership are there by the will of God. Oh, not necessarily the directive will of God, but they could not be there if His permissive will did not allow it. And while we may not understand the reasoning of it, we need to understand the reality of it. We have seen the tolerance of God and hence the declaration of Peter, there is a judgment coming. We noted that Peter identifies two characteristics of those individuals that provide a basis for them not to be afraid to blaspheme dignities. They despise dominion and they are self-willed. Despise dominion means they continually make it a principle to think down upon those who have been granted authority. But before we look at the next characteristic, self-willed, we have to deal with that word daring. They are identified as daring. That's correlated with despisers of dominion. The word Ptolemaitai in the Greek means fearless, irreverent darers. As a matter of fact, we see that they dare to go where angels themselves fear to tread. That those self-willed, false prophets, and false teachers, they are self-willed, they are dominated by self-interest and determination from which they will not move. They are locked in to those positions. And they tremble not to rail at dignities. The word rail is translated from the word from which we bring it into English by our word blaspheming. Blaspheming is a good religious word, but it sometimes loses its impact and we seek to understand all that it involves. It's saying while making it a principle to to continuously speak contemptuously. Blasphemy is more than speaking evil against, it is to speak contemptuously against dignitaries, those whose character procures for themselves a good opinion is the word dignities here. It's our word doxus from which we get the word grace. It's based, God's grace, charis, is based upon the character of godliness. When we manifest godliness in our life, we are putting the 
the grace concept on display. So verse 10 should read this way. But especially the ones continually making it a principle to participate in following along behind the back of the flesh with its characteristics in the sphere of defiling lust. And they continue to make it a principle to think down on one who has been granted authority. Shameless, irreverent darers, dominated by self-interest and determination from which they will not move. They tremble not while making it a principle to continuously speak contemptuously of those whose character procures for themselves a good opinion, those who in God's grace are godly. Now look at verse 11 for a comparison. Whereas angels, which have, which are greater in power and might, bring not railing accusations against them before the Lord. An example of comparison is used here by Peter. He said, uh, these false teachers and false prophets that speak evil of dignitaries and uh, of the the those that are dignities, those that walk in a godly manner, he says, they're going in a position that even angels will not go. Whereas angels in strength and power greater than those of humanity dare not bring accusation against these leaders. We are admonished then to be reminded that God has control. And that those that have been placed in places of leadership have been placed there under His permissive will at the least. There are certainly places of the directive will of God for the placing of leaders. But there are others that are there because of the permissive will of God and there are some that are not there because of the overruling will of God. But we need to be careful as we attempt to judge those that we make a distinction between the judgment of the individual and the judgment of the action or the activity. And so we are given an example of that, that the angels, while they are superior in ability and power to humanity. We may not be comfortable with that, but that's the direction of God. They have more ability and they have more power than we as believers have. And yet they dare not bring an accusation, a blasphemous, a contemptuous statement against those individuals that have been placed into power. He identifies the angelic realm in two areas of being superior to man. The first area is 
ability. The English text says in strength and power, and the word strength is translated from the Greek word iskui. Uh, it identifies ability. It refers to the ability that an individual or a being might have. At salvation, the Holy Spirit indwells us in order to empower us to live the Christian life. And the Holy Spirit gives us abilities. At least one spiritual gift is given. One unique ability that is given to us at salvation. Frequently, as we have seen in our study of this epistle of Peter, frequently it's a combination of gifts that or abilities that enable us to operate. Well, apparently the angels have greater abilities than we do. And then the word power is translated from the Greek word dunamai, from which we get that more common word that we find throughout the New Testament as it talks about the power that is available in the lives of the believer. Dunamis is uh, the word from which we get our English word dynamite. It simply means a natural inherent power. As a result of our faith in Jesus Christ, by receiving Christ as Savior, we are endued with power, dunamis power from on high. When we allow the Holy Spirit the control of our life, that dunamis power, that Holy Spirit power is active in us. However, we are told by Peter that the angels have greater power than that which is available to us. It is greater. And yet, Peter says, they dare not bring against them any judicial charge from the Lord. The fact that angels having greater ability and power than human beings is only, however, to the rapture, because at the rapture, we are changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye to be like Christ. And while John said it does not yet appear what we shall be when we shall see Him, we shall be as He is. And so we then will be superior to the angels. But the angels today are ministering spirits sent to minister to those that are going to be heirs of salvation. And while they have greater ability and greater power than we do now, that will change at the rapture of the church. Yet they do not make a railing accusation against those that are in places of authority. The literal reading is, they do not make a judicial charge against them. And they do not bring that charge from the Lord. A contemptuous charge, blasphemous judgment. This phrase is used of Michael the archangel in the epistle of Jude. You remember that one little short one chapter epistle in Jude where we are told that Michael the archangel And Satan got into a dispute over the body of Moses. 
Remember when Moses was disobedient to God and refused to speak to the rock to get water to usher out of it according to the command of God. He struck it with his rod as God had instructed him the first time at the beginning of that 40-year period. But now he told him to speak. But Moses got carried away and what you rebels must we fetch water from you out of this rock? And he struck the rock. That rock was symbolic of Jesus to be smitten once. And so God said, because you disbelieved Moses, you'll not go into the promised land, but we'll, uh, I'll take you off somewhere and do you in and bury you. And uh, then Joshua will lead the children of Israel in. So, according to the Scripture, God took Moses away somewhere and then buried him. And uh, we are told then in Jude that there's a battle between Michael the archangel and Satan over the body of Moses. Why is the body of Moses so important? Well, in our study of, of the end times, we saw that Moses is coming back. Moses and Elijah are going to come during the last three and a half years of the tribulation. So that body was guarded. Michael prevailed, but he had a battle. And in his dispute with Satan, he dared not bring a judgmental accusation against Satan. We're to leave the judgment of these false teachers and these false prophets to God. We can't kill them all, let God sort them out. We're going to have to go God's way with it. We are admonished then in verse 11, whereas angels continuously as a matter of principle being greater in comparative strength and inherent power, continue not to bring contemptuous, judgmental speech against them, the ones who've been granted this authority before the Lord. And Jude records it this way, Likewise, these filthy dreamers defile the flesh, despise dominion, speak evil of dignities, and yet Michael, the archangel, when contending with the devil, he disputed about the body of Moses, durst not bring against him a railing accusation, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these speak evil of things which they know not. But what they know naturally is brute beast, and these things they corrupt themselves. So although the elect angels dare not bring any kind of contemptuous judgment against these false teachers, because only the Lord Jesus Christ has the right to judge mankind. Only the elect angels do not have authority to condemn and judge their instruments of service and servants to God, but they do not have judgmental authority. Chiefly, the angelic conflict must continue to its ultimate conclusion. That means 
free will has to be allowed to stand and to function throughout human history in order for the angelic conflict to be settled. In his Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, Judge not that you be not judged. Paul wrote in Romans 14.4, Who art thou that judgest another man's servant? To his own master he standeth or falleth. Yea, he shall be holden up, for God is able to make him stand. So regardless of how evil the authorities might be with their free will, we do not have a right to judge them. We cannot know their intent. We have to leave that to the only one who can know their intent. Oh yeah, we tell people from, I know what you're thinking. I know what your intent is. That's a lie from the devil. You do not know what they're thinking. You do not know what their intent is. You may perceive some evidence in a certain direction, but you cannot know that. And therefore, we are not allowed to judge others. God will judge it. Someone said we're not to judge, but we can be fruit inspectors. Well, it's the fruit that must be under our scrutiny and judgment. So, the angels that are greater than us refrain from speaking in contemptuous judgment against those who have been appointed to places of leadership. These shameless, irreverent darers dominated by self-interest and determination from which they will not move continuously speak contemptuously of those uh, whose character procures for themselves a good opinion, those who have been granted authority by God and are identified as godly. In this text, Peter is providing assurance to the believer then who is being victimized by these false teachers, being made merchandise of by the false prophets. God knows how to deliver the godly and He knows how to judge the ungodly. This reminder is important to us because of the believer's frequent inability to see that God has things under control. How does He allow that false doctrine to be taught? How does He allow them to prosper? So we need to be reminded from time to time the reason. God does care. And that's His message through the pen of the Apostle Peter to remind us that God is in control. And not even the angels get involved in accusation and contemptuous judgment against injustice. Isaiah chapter 55 verse 8 and following reads this way, For my thoughts, this is God speaking through the pen of the uh, of Isaiah, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain cometh down, and the snow from heaven, and returneth not thither, but watereth the earth, and maketh it bring forth and bud, that it may give seed to the sower, and bread to the eater, 
so shall my word be that goeth forth out of my mouth. It shall not return unto me void, but it shall accomplish that which I please, and it shall prosper in the thing whereunto I sent it. For ye shall go out with joy, and be led forth with peace, and mountains and hills shall break forth before you into singing, and all the trees of the fields shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorns shall come up the fir tree, and instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle tree, and it shall be to the Lord for a name, for an everlasting sign that thou shalt not be cut off. God's ways are not our ways. God's thoughts are, and ways of thinking are not the same as ours. God's timing is certain, certainly structured around His schedule, not our schedule. Why now? Why at this time? God is in control. In the text in Isaiah, He said, You shall go forth uh, out with joy and be led forth with peace, and the mountains and the hills shall break forth unto you in singing, and the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorns shall come up the fir tree, and instead of the briars shall come up the myrtle tree. And it shall be to Jehovah for a name, for an everlasting sign that thou shalt not be cut off. So let's wait upon the Lord. And until then, may we be reminded that we are sojourners, that is, foreigners, not living in our own country, but living alongside the locals to do the king's business. And let us not grow weary in well-doing. However, don't you just love the howevers? However, in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul reminds us that we are not to judge one another. And then in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, he berates the church, should be 1 Corinthians chapter 5, he berates the church because they have not dealt with the man in their congregation that is having sex with his father's wife. Can we have it both ways? He tells them in chapter 4, judge not. And then in chapter Five, he says, why have you not judged this individual? I'm not there, but I've made a judgment. However, as we look at the distinction, the difference is found in the object that is judged. A careful study helps us understand that we have no right to judge the intent of a person. We can and must judge the actions of the person. And our judgment should not be upon against them individually. Our judgment is to be upon the falsity that they are teaching. And we are admonished to herald that declaration of warning concerning the teaching. 1 Corinthians Chapter 4 is an interesting passage. It says, Let a man so account of us as ministers of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required in stewards that a man be found faithful. But with me it is a very small thing that I should be judged of you or of man's uh, hereby uh, man's judgment. Yea, I judge not my own self, for I know nothing by myself 
yet I am hereby justified, but he that judgeth me is the Lord. Therefore judge nothing before the time until the Lord come, who shall bring to light the hidden things of darkness and will make manifest the counsels of the heart. Then shall every man have praise of God. Judge the output. Condemn the falsity, but leave the individuals to God. Judgment is coming for these false teachers. They are identified as flesh seekers. They follow after their old sin nature. They despise authority. They are self-satisfied darers, going even where the angels dare to go. We are to evaluate the message by the Word of God, but we are to leave the judgment and the name-calling of the false teachers to God. Rats. He gets all the pleasure. We have not the capacity to understand their intent. Oh, I know, we think we do. Judge the output. Receive that which is profitable. Resist that which is not in harmony with the Word of God. And let God take care of the messenger. But it all begins at salvation. The Bible says, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The Bible says with the heart man believes unto God, but with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Our Father and our God, we give you thanks for your word. We seek an understanding and an application of your word to our life in our daily lives. So let us become doers of the word and not hearers only. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.